Well, in case you weren't aware, marriage is under attack in our culture. Probably not a news flash to you as you watch our culture in action, whether it be on TV, in the news, or on the internet. The sanctity of marriage is being attempting to be desanctified before our very eyes. And this is not a new development. It seems worse these days, but it's not a new development. I would tell you that marriage has been under attack. It has been under assault since the Garden of Eden. There's never been a generation that has held marriage in the right level of esteem. There's never been a generation that hasn't had to defend the sanctity of marriage. You go through the biblical times and into our present day from polygamy to divorce to cohabitation to so-called same-sex marriage. There's been an ongoing war raging against marriage. There's been an ongoing war raging against one man and one woman becoming one flesh till death do us part. That is not the natural trajectory of the culture that we live in, and it's been that way for a long time. So this morning, I want to dedicate a sermon <clears throat> to promoting a right understanding and a right embracing of this gift called marriage that God has given us. And we must, as a result of this time together and other times that we will no doubt spend together on this topic, we must come to a certain and common understanding of what marriage is. And I say certain because we can be absolutely certain about what marriage is to be. It's right here. And we're going to look at some texts this morning. We can walk away from the Bible certain about what we are to be, husband and wife, in a marriage. And I also say the word common. I want us to have a common understanding for what marriage is because we as a church body must be totally united on this certain understanding of marriage. And it is, it is our design, and I think it's the design of every single church that proclaims Jesus Christ as Lord. We must take an absolute, certain, strong stance on what marriage is. And I'm going to show you why in just a moment. And it's going to come straight out of the Bible. It's not my opinion. It's going to come straight from God's Word Himself. And so this is not a subjective topic that's open for definition. It's not open for interpretation. This is not <clears throat> something that you are entitled to have an opinion about. It's not something that I'm entitled to have an opinion about. The Lord has spoken. The Lord has created marriage and we need to see what he says about it, and we need to jump on board with it. So the goal of the sermon is to expand our understanding and our appreciation of what marriage is, and to do so from the Bible and not merely from our emotions. We don't need to define marriage based on what our emotions tell us. We need to define it on what our God tells us. And so the first thing I want to do is I want to show you the beginning of marriage. And I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. 
This is where it all began, and I wanted to show you three verses here in the first two chapters that are going to show you that God had a grand design long ago, and it is something that has not gone out of date. It is not something that is an old tradition that's had its better days. It is the way God created man and woman from the very beginning. And so we're going to start with Genesis 1, 27. You know this verse well. We go back to this verse often. And my first point is that God designed marriage from the very beginning by creating a man and a woman. And here's what Genesis 1.17 says. 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. He didn't start with two of the same. He started with two of the opposite. And he designed them to be brought together, as we will see in just a moment. Look now at Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 21. We'll look at two verses right there. God is the first father who gave away a bride. (laughs) Read with me. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. He's already made Adam from dust. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. There's a father walking a bride to her husband-to-be. He brought Eve to the man. The man didn't make Eve. The man didn't conjure up Eve. They didn't discover each other. No, she was brought to Adam for the purpose of them coming together. And let's look at that in verse 24 of chapter 2. God declared the, the union of one man and one woman right here in this verse. Genesis 2.24 Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So God, from the book of Genesis, the first two chapters, I can say to you this morning, designed marriage to be between one man and one woman, and that they should not be separated. We'll see evidence of that here coming soon. And this is something good and holy and righteous and something that we should fully embrace. So marriage, my point is, is not some human invention. This this, this didn't happen. God intentionally designed this from the beginning. It's not a Christian tradition that has gone out of date and fallen by the wayside. It has not been too narrowly defined for all these centuries. And we're just now finally enlightened that there's so much more possibility in marriage. No, it is very exclusive as we see in Genesis 1 and 2. God alone is the creator of marriage. The definer of of marriage. God alone is the authority of marriage. And we as a church need to get on board with what God's about. We have a ministry in our church called Married Life. And it is, I would say, a thriving ministry right now. We, we have looked up in our church and we have seen God at work in our married couples ministry. 
And we believe that where we see God at work, this is straight out of experiencing God, where you see God at work, you need to go join Him right there in that work because that's a direction that He's taking us as a church body. And I pray that we'll see other areas in our church that He's at work and we'll go join Him there too. We don't need to make church what we want it to be. We need to make church what God wants it to be. And I think we can clearly say that God is at work in the married ministry of this church. And we want to invest in that more. There's a principle at stake here. When, when we are strong at something, when you as an individual are strong or gifted at something, you need to do that a whole lot. Why? Because that's how God made you. He gifted you in that way, and so you need to deploy that gift to the fullest for His glory. The same happens in the church. And God is moving amongst our married ministry. And so we think that we need to invest more in something that He is blessing us with so that He'll bless more and He'll get more and more glory. If you look at our married ministry life, I can tell you that it is strong in leadership, It is strong in teaching. It is strong in participation and attendance and numbers. And so we have all kinds of evidence that God is saying, come here, let's promote this more. Let's do this more because there's so much at stake. And so he continues to bless it and seems to be growing it, and we want to join him with that. And so as we look at this ministry in our midst, And as we consider that God is growing this, and this is thriving under His sovereign hand, yeah, we're going to invest in it, and that means we're going to make some changes to it. And the first change that we're going to make is we're going to rename it. It's called married life. We're going to rename it subtly. We're going to rename it married for life. We're adding a three-letter word, for. And I want to know, don't respond, but I would be curious to know what that little word for did to you the minute you heard me say, we're going to rename it. Wait a minute, that's sacred ground. We don't rename things around here without talking about it. But then you hear that we're going to insert the word for between the word married and the word life. Doesn't that little word for speak volumes, doesn't it? And so we want to be certain as we pour spiritual assets into this married ministry, we want to be certain that this ministry is named something and that name connotes to people, wow, there's something really significant going on there, married for life. There's no uncertainty there. There's there's some possibilities for what that little word for means. And so the rest of this sermon this morning, I'm going to give you four things, four things that married for life is going to be about. There are four pillars, if you will, that married life is going to stand on. Okay, so there you see married for life, and there you see four pillars with some scripture next to each one of them. And I want us to look at these one by one briefly as we understand what God intended for marriage in the world, yes, and amongst Rocky Point Baptist Church folks, absolutely. So the first one that I want to look at, pillar number one, is that marriage is about a mystery. Now what in the world does that mean? 
I hope that that word conjures up some curiosity, mystery. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32. Because we see straight out of the Bible that marriage, according to Paul, is a mystery. And I know some people are going, amen, I I guarantee you it's a mystery. I haven't been able to figure her out since the day we said I do. We're not talking about that kind of mystery. (laughs) It's bigger and more glorious than that. Okay? So Ephesians chapter 5, 22 through 33 is this magnificent passage about marriage. And we're not going to break down all of it. But I want us to look at verses 31 and 32. Because Paul was inspired to take us all the way back to the book of Genesis. He takes us to a verse that we've already read. He is rooting marriage into the design that God had for it back in the Garden of Eden when he brought the woman to the man. And Paul was inspired to write this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We've heard that. But then look at 32. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So I want to tell you this morning that marriage is a mystery. It is a profound mystery. And it makes a huge statement to everybody that looks in on it. It is a display of the love relationship and the covenant commitment between Jesus Christ and His bride, the church. And so I'm going to tell you this morning that from the Bible we can discern that the most important human relationship that exists amongst mankind from the beginning of time till now is that between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. It's more important than a mom to a daughter, a son to a dad, uncles, grandparents. The most important human relationship, bar none, is that between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. Why? Not because those two people are unique and special. No, because Jesus Christ and those that he came to die for his church are unique and special. And God in his wisdom said, I want to show people a little bit about me in the relationships that they have in this marriage on earth. And so it's a profound mystery. A husband is to image, if you look in the verses right before this in Ephesians 5, a husband is to image Jesus Christ in the way he relates to his bride. How did Jesus Christ relate to his bride? He laid his life down for her. In a minute, we're going to talk about a wife submitting to a husband. We're going to break that down just briefly here this morning. And that will get you a kick in the face sometimes if you say that to the wrong people. Submission is almost a dirty word in our culture. But we're going to talk about biblical submission. But before we go there, let me just say this. Where are the men that are complaining about being told that they are to die for their woman? Would you rather submit to someone or die for someone? I'm signing up for submitting. (laughs) Right? But no, it's more extreme. The calling on a man in a marriage by God is extreme. It is radical. He is to lay his life down for her just like Jesus did for his church. 
And so there is a sacrificial love, a putting of, of her ahead of me that God calls a husband to be about. This is extreme language. So husbands, you're called to be like Jesus. Jesus bled and died on a cross for His bride. You are to put your interests aside and to sell out for her interests and her needs. That's a profound mystery when a man does that. Because that's imitating Jesus Christ. It's profound. And yes, a wife is to image the church by submitting to her own husband, not men in general. Okay? Ephesians 5, you read that in there, it's very specific. Wives submit to your own husbands. Chauvinism says women are second class citizens, they submit to all men. Wrong. God says a wife is to submit to her own husband as the church submits to Jesus Christ. And so we as a congregation and the church at large around the world, if we are authentically saved, we delight in worshiping Jesus, submitting our lives to Him, obeying His commands, and fulfilling His calling in our life. And a bride is not to do all those same things to her husband because he's really not Jesus. He's just to imitate Jesus. But she is to submit in ways that honor Him as a picture of the way the church submits to Jesus to honor Him. And so wives are to submit to their own husbands by loving Him and by trusting Him. And the husband is to be lovable and trustworthy because he's laid his life down for her. And when you live in harmony like that, you have biblical marriage. And it's the best thing ever. Marriage, if this is true, if it's a profound mystery, and he's talking about Christ and his church, then I'm going to tell you the most evangelistic thing you and I can do in marriage is to live in harmony with one another. Because when we do that, we are rightly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, who died for his church, who believes in him, and who will live together for all of eternity. So marriage is evangelism. Marriage is a proclamation of the gospel. And who are we proclaiming the gospel to? Well, first we're proclaiming it to some children. And we're going to talk about children here in a moment. But when mom and dad live in harmony in marriage, they are proclaiming the gospel of Christ and his church to their children. We proclaim the gospel to one another when we rightly live with one another in marriage in this church. And it's to stir us up to go home and do it right with our marriage. And we proclaim the gospel to the world at large because when neighbors and co-workers and people that we run into in the world see a harmonious marriage, it strikes them, especially in this day and age. It strikes them, and it makes them curious about this profound mystery that they're watching before their very eyes. So, when a husband and wife are fulfilling their roles, they are telling the story of the gospel to whoever's looking in and actually to one another. And when a husband and wife are not fulfilling their roles, they are actually proclaiming an anti-gospel. And that's a serious move, isn't it? To say something with the way that we live in marriage that contradicts Jesus Christ and His church, that is a serious, serious thing to consider. And so we are called in this life to proclaim the gospel by the way we live together as husband and wife. Marriage is the shadow 
Jesus Christ and the church are the substance, and we shadow that substance in the way we live with one another. So, the first one is, marriage is about a mystery, and so we say that we're married for life. We are married for eternal life. Eternal life that's found in Jesus Christ alone. Pillar number two. Marriage is about commitment. Marriage is about commitment. And I would like to add the subtitle, Married for Life, right? Married for this life. Married for this life. Married till death do us part. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Jesus speaks very directly to the issue of commitment in marriage. Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 5. And this is so encouraging because Paul did what? Paul took us right back to Genesis, right? A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Well, here's Jesus speaking before Paul was inspired to write what he wrote. And here's what Jesus says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Both Jesus and Paul have driven a stake in the ground and said marriage is something that was instituted by God in the very beginning. And then watch what he says next. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. God did not design marriage for a separation to happen in that marriage, in this life. God has done the joining, and God will do the disjoining, if you will. No one can say, I married the wrong person, I got married outside of God's will, so I need to go in this so that I can get back into God's will. Every marriage that has come together was ordained by God. There was a covenant that was made before God when that marriage was entered into. There are not two kinds of marriages. There's not Christian marriage and then non-believers marriage. And if we were married as non-believers, then we can get out of that one because we need... No, there is one marriage when a man and a woman come together, God said, be married till death do us part. And what he has joined together, he says, let no man separate. And I want to show you how this is true in this profound mystery that Paul has pointed out to us in Ephesians 5. Jesus will never abandon his bride. He'll never leave her. Let's go continue on to Matthew 28. I just want to show you real briefly. We could could spend a sermon on each one of these topics. But let's look very briefly at Matthew 28 starting in verse 16. This is some 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead. And here's what we read. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Wow. They've witnessed nail marks in hands and spear the spear wound in his side. They've walked with him for 40 days. They've watched him eat fish. Okay? Many, many witnesses to this. And now we have 11 disciples. They go to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw them, they worshipped him. But some doubted. That doubt is not faithful belief, isn't it? 
That's not an admirable quality to be a disciple, one of the eleven that is doubting at the point that Jesus is about to ascend and he's fulfilled everything that he ever told them was coming. They doubt him. Let's read on. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, here it is, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus says to even some doubting disciples who are struggling to be faithful to him, I am with you always to the end of the age. And marriage, human marriage, is a proclamation of the mystery of Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. And Jesus says to his bride, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. I'm with you always to the end of the age. And so when a human man and woman come together in marriage, we are to image this clearly to the world at large and to one another. What makes divorce so horrific in God's eyes? It's not because, just because, a man and a woman made a promise and now they've broken it. That, that's disturbing to God for sure. But the separation of a man and a woman from marriage totally goes against the mystery and the gospel of Jesus Christ and his church. And it is saying something untrue about Jesus and his church. Said another way, divorce is an anti-gospel statement and act. And I say all this, and I know without a doubt that there are divorcees in this room. And when you hear that, I have no doubt that there is some, some experience of a reopening of a wound. And I don't, I don't proclaim this insensitive and inconsiderate of those of you who are in this room that have experienced divorce. In fact, my stance on that is I want to do two things to love you. Number one, I want to come walk right beside you and put my arm around you and say, come on, let's go. It's going to be all right because there is forgiveness in the Christian faith. And it comes through the cross of Jesus Christ and His resurrection from the dead. And mistakes have been made. And yes, sins have been committed. But there is no reason to live in an unforgiven state if you believe in Jesus Christ. And we, be, we need to be very careful that we don't put divorce in some kind of category as some super sin. And all the other ones are lesser. We have all sinned in this room. I've preached us through the Ten Commandments. And we are all murderers. We are all adulterers. We are all liars. We are all thieves, right? We've all committed these sins. And so I'm not discounting the divorced in this room this morning. And the divorced and remarried in this room this morning. And here's what I would say. You're, you're married now. Proclaim the mystery in this marriage that you have now until Christ comes again or calls you home. Live forgiven, embrace forgiveness that comes in Christ, and live for His glory, proclaiming this profound mystery in the marriage that He has given you to this point. And so now, in the marriage that you're in, it stops, right? Till death do us part. We're not going to go down that path again this time. And we're going to honor Him. 
And we're going to fulfill what it intended to be from this point forward in this marriage. The second thing that I'm going to do to love married couples in this church is I'm going to preach sermons like this and say divorce is wrong. So it's both. If, you, if you've committed that sin and you've, been ex, you've experienced that, I'm going to come bind you up and say, come on, you're forgiven in Christ if you believe in Him and it will be well. But I'm also going to say to those that have not experienced it or those that have but are married again, don't go there. Because it is a statement against the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's what I love about our Married for Life ministry that meets once a month, the second Tuesday of every month. We have divorcees that are married now that come. This is not a, a ministry for just the once married. It's a ministry for the repentant twice married to now live to honor Christ in this marriage for the rest of their life. And so we have divorcees that come and they have much to teach us about marriage. And we have much to do to minister to them in their marriage. So I want you to know that Married for Life is open to every marriage in this church, no matter what history is there. Because we have a Redeemer named Jesus Christ who redeems broken marriages and broken pasts. Pillar number three. Marriage is about abundance. Don't turn with me because this verse is, is like five words long. John 10.10 10 says this. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus is speaking in John 10 to his disciples. He's speaking about his sheep that hear his voice and know his voice. And he says, I came that this bride might have life and that she would have an abundant life. When we live in marriage, human marriage on this earth, it is to be abundant if it's going to proclaim the mystery, the profound mystery of Christ in His church. I, I hear so many derogatory things said in marriage about this abundance issue. I cringe. And I want you to join me in cringing when someone refers to their spouse as the ball and chain. I, I don't think God chuckles at that at all. God has designed us to come together as man and woman and to live abundantly in this life. Now, we're two fallen people, right? We have struggles with sin and self. And there are times that it doesn't feel real abundant. But we are to be repenters and we are to be exhorters of one another. And we are to strive to live in marriage in abundant ways. What's abundant about a marriage in this life? Well, it should be abundant with joy, trust, faithfulness, peace. Our marriages should be the, the most safest and the most peaceful place that we can go on this earth. Outside of our time in the Word and our relationship with Jesus, we ought to be able to go to the safe haven of our marriage and experience an abundance of peace and harmony and unity and joy. Now, I'm married just like many of you are, and I know there are moments that peace and joy are not readily to be had. <laughs> we all have our moments, right? I can say this right in front of my wife. But we need to be striving quickly to race back 
to peace and to joy and to harmony and to unity so that we are racing back to proclaiming out this mystery, this profound mystery. And if we live our lives understanding that our marriage is to portray Christ and His church and that we have a responsibility to to do that, we're going to run back to harmony and peace and reconciliation every time we realize that we got out of kilter. And so we are to live in our married lives abundantly because human marriage is to mirror this truth that Christ gives His church abundant life. And so I'm going to tell you how. I'm going to give you the secret. We had a secret for our ladies this weekend about contentment. I'm going to give you the secret to having an abundant marriage. Okay? Everybody needs to write this one down or remember it clearly. Your marriage will not be abundant if you husband or if you wife are not living out an abundant relationship with Jesus Christ. I really believe in my marriage. I'm talking about me personally now. When I am not husbanding my wife as I should, it's because I am not relating to Jesus Christ as I should. So my marriage and how I play my role of husband is a direct reflection in that moment of my relationship with Jesus Christ. And when I'm not doing it well, I am distant from Christ. But when I am dialed into Jesus Christ and submitted to Him, it's amazing, but I think I'm a pretty good husband. And I don't think that's being cocky. Because Christ is the source of making me live with my wife in a way that He intended me to live with her. And when a wife is biblically submitting to her husband and loving him as the church does, it's a reflection that she is in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. So the secret to marriage is that, husband, you must be pursuing Christ and submitted to Him at all times. And the same for the wife. And when we're right there, we're right here. It's fail-proof. It's a guarantee. And so now I want to say something else about abundant life. Because sometimes God in His sovereignty takes a spouse away from us through death. And we had abundance in this life. But we lost that human relationship. And you know, the Bible says, and Jesus specifically speaks in Matthew 19, He goes on in verse 30 and He says, For in the resurrection there is neither marriage nor are those given in marriage, but all are like angels in heaven. So we see that marriage is for this life now, but it's not for eternity. That's a hard truth. I I look at Jennifer this morning and I go, Why can't imagine spending eternity not married to her? But I'm not. It's clear. This is a temporary gift that God has given us on earth to point us to the eternal reality that Jesus Christ is married to His church and we are that bride that He's married to. So make no mistake, there is marriage in heaven. (laughs) Oh, there's marriage in heaven. But it's between the bridegroom Jesus Christ and the bride the church. 
So He's given us these relationships on earth, these marriage relationships on earth, as a temporary shadowing of an eternal reality. That's how big earthly marriage is. And so we are married in this life for a very short period of time. Some in this room have experienced that and realized that, and some of us haven't. Wanda, you've experienced that it is a flicker of time, right? That you have Preston. 60 how many years? 64 years. Praise God. How many years is 64 in eternity? How, how much? It's less than that. We said goodbye to Bud Jones in February, and Peggy's here this morning. 31 years, right? So Wanda and Peggy understand that, that this is a flicker of time. But I think these two ladies also understand that there's a greater marriage waiting that's already kind of started and we're waiting for the full consummation of it. And that's when Jesus Christ comes again. And there will be no marriage in heaven like human to human that we're talking about. There will be marriage in heaven, bridegroom Jesus Christ, to bride His church. And so we have come to understand that the time that we're married on this earth is brief. And God has called us to be together as husband and wife for a brief moment. And in that brief moment, we are to go all out to proclaim the mystery of Christ and His church. So it's a momentary shadow to an eternal reality. And we must be ambitious with what we do with this momentary shadow. Gospel-oriented ambition is what we need to be about. Here's the last one. Marriage is about children. I like to say married for new life. God designed it that a man and a woman would come together and children would be the result. Back in Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So God designed marriage to be where children come from. It's for making children. It's for filling the earth. But this is not the main purpose of marriage. main purpose is to proclaim this mystery gospel thing. But I'm going to tell you when it comes to children, marriage is not first and foremost about making children. Marriage is where God wants to make children disciples of Jesus Christ. Because when God said, go forth and multiply, there's the making of children. But then he said, after you multiply, I want you to subdue the earth. We don't subdue the earth with rakes and shovels and axes and saws. We subdue the earth with children who are like arrows shot from our husband and wife relationships. And we subdue the earth for the glory of Jesus Christ. We're not just clearing land and building cities. That's not subduing the earth. Putting bits in horses' mouths and controlling them, that's not subduing the earth. Subduing the earth is making God's name known throughout the whole world. That is the role of parents with children. And this is what is meant by subdue it. 
And so children are to be raised in the Lord to subdue the earth for the King of Kings. That's why we are to go forth and multiply. And so now I want to address another issue because I'm very aware that not everyone is able to have children. There are adoptions in this room. There are, for the moment, closed up wombs in this room. And God in His sovereignty has chosen for that to be that way. Because He's the one that gives life and He's the one that takes life away. And so I want to say this morning that we do not define ourselves and we do not define our marriage on how many children we have or if we are able to physically conceive and have children. Because marriage is not primarily about having children. And there is an opportunity in our marriages to have children by another means, and that is by adoption. But either way, a husband and a wife are to come together, and there's either going to be a conceived child or an adopted child. And the importance of the children aspect is that these children be raised up as disciples of Jesus Christ. Not that they were physically created by this man and this woman. There are a multitude of children who are needing a husband and a wife, a mother and a father to come together and to raise them up in the admonition of the Lord so that they can subdue the earth for the King of Kings. And so your marriage is not defined as a quality marriage if you can have children physically. Your marriage is defined as a quality marriage by what you do with the children that God gives you by whatever means He chooses to give you. What's amazing is the latter, raising up disciples of Christ, can happen even if the former, having children physically, doesn't happen through the gift of adoption and the ability to go do that. So these are the four tenets of married for life. We're married for eternal life in that we paint a picture of eternal life between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. We're married for abundant life in that we are to be abundantly married to one another, living in abundant harmony and joy and peace, because that's how we will live with Jesus Christ for all of eternity. We are married for, uh, for this life in that we are to come together and not separate till death do us part. And we are married for new life in that God created marriage to be the way that he would subdue the earth through the procreation of the human race. So it's our prayer as we retool just barely our married life ministry, and we call it Married for Life, and we invest more and more spiritual assets into this ministry. It is our prayer that we as a church will daily look into the Bible And more and more over time, our marriages will portray this profound mystery that we find Paul talking about in Ephesians chapter 5. I want us to be led away from a small, worldly, culturally contaminated, unbiblical view of marriage. It is highly esteemed by God in His Word. And it needs to be highly esteemed in our very midst and in our very marriage. And we need to understand that marriage is more than two people falling in love. It is a mystery, a momentary shadow of a gospel proclamation 
that is used by God to bring more and more people into his kingdom and to subdue the earth until Jesus Christ comes again. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to embrace your design for marriage in this life that you've given us. And I pray that every marriage in this room and at this church as a whole would be known as a church who holds high the sanctity of marriage and sees it is one of many ways, and yes, even an ultimate way to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and His salvation for a bride called the church. Father, I pray for the marriages that are in our very midst, that they would see that they are to live out something more than just their personal desires. They're to live out a an evangelistic message to the world on your behalf in the way they treat one another. Equip us to be found faithful, fulfilling that until Christ comes again or you call us home. And I pray it in his name. Amen.